Hey, keto freaks, this is Carl. Do you or someone you know have trouble focusing? You know what I'm talking about. You sit down to read something, try to figure out your monthly budget, write that novel you've been putting off, or maybe you just can't seem to do one task at a time. Well, you may not know this, but I'm a musician as well as a software developer. Programming is a job that requires focus, long periods of uninterrupted work. It's hard for them and for you. I've created Music to Code By. This is music, yes, but it's specifically and scientifically designed to promote focus. Studies show that when math students were exposed to Baroque music between 60 and 80 beats per minute, they did better with comprehension and testing. So I created more modern music that is neither boring nor distracting, but falls within that tempo range. It's just the right mix. I also made the pieces 25 minutes long. That correlates to research that shows we all get brain fatigue after 20 or so minutes of hard focus. The result is thousands of happy customers. Now, you don't have to be a programmer to reap the benefits of music to code by. It has been known to soothe restless pets, calm fussy babies, and even help autistic kids relax and fall asleep. Listen to some free samples at musictocodeby.net. Back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February of 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm 70 pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia. I've been on a ketogenic diet for over two years. When I started, I was very sick with uh, complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I have also lost about 70 pounds and have completely turned my health around. And this show is a document of both my progress through ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for a couple of years in ketosis. Yeah. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice. We're keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? Nah. We've done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them, and we hope to share some of that research. Where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite research supporting any claims that we make. And you'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. Yeah, we are. Yeah, we love to cook and we love to eat. So we also share the great food that we can eat on this diet. And every episode, both of us share a recipe for an essential keto meal that we eat regularly. Yep. So let's start podcast episode 24, The Epic Successes Show. So do we have any corrections or apologies from last week, Richard? 
Nope. The only thing I want to declare is that our Facebook group is awesome. They gave us so yes. much good content for the budget show, and I list I listened to it again while I was riding yesterday. And I reckon it might be my new favorite show that we've ever done. What makes it great is, again, the, the people who chimed in and gave us all of their experiences. I think that's what is most valuable for me is hearing everybody's stories. And this show is no different, really. That's right. So we've got an interesting show coming up today. Um, we've got some interesting guests, haven't we? Yeah, and a couple of epic success stories. Hey, let's start with you. How did you do this week? Um, I did well. I had uh, I did a the three day fast. A lot of lot of us in in the group did a three day fast from Thursday evening to Sunday evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did my seventy two hour fast, and then following that, I did a seventy five k bike ride. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I, I was actually aiming for a hundred, but it got cold and uh, and fairly miserable and a little bit rainy in Canberra. So I decided to cut cut it short. Did you do the bike ride after you ate? No, no, I, I was totally fasted the entire bike ride. So, uh, Oh, before you ate? Yeah, before I ate. When I started fasting, I put some meat in my uh, sous vide machine and when I finished my fast after 72 hours, that meat had been in there for 72 hours and it's going to turn out to be the recipe for today. So, Well, I think you just gave it away, put meat in a sous vide for, 20, <laughs> for 72 hours and there it is. Yeah. Uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but uh, yeah, yeah so, sure. so no, I had an outstanding week. That's awesome. And I'm still getting over my flu, and maybe that was why I was a little bit slower on my bike than I normally am. So um, it's probably related to still, you know, still getting over the flu a bit. Right. We're all sort of getting over our Barry White syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> Gingivitis. Gingivitis. <laughs> yeah. So how do you go, Carl? I had a great week. Um, I uh, I also did the fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did, a, again, I did about 66 hours and I think that seems to be my number. I'm not sure if I'm getting hungry at 66 hours or it's just that, I don't know, I have a psychological thing or I feel like there's some signal telling me I should eat, but, um, yeah. that seems to be the number for me. Yeah. I tend to get lethargic at the end. After, beyond about 70 hours, I start to become a bit lethargic and my extremities get cold and, and I can just feel my metabolism starting to slow down in reaction. And that's a good yeah. time. I like to, to stop my fast. And that's what all the fasting experts like Jason Fung and all those guys say yeah. that, uh, yeah, three days is about the limit before your body starts dialing back the metabolism. So that that may be what's happening to me too. But anyway, I you know I had had some steady weight creep, uh, and it, I wasn't I wasn't cheating at all. I was just probably mm. eating too much fat, you know. Yeah. And uh, eating too many, eating too much. Mm. And uh, I you know I put on a couple pounds, and I was three oh three before I started the fast. And this morning I'm two ninety five. Booyah. <laughs> So that's eight pounds, baby, in yeah. three days. Yeah, that's that's insane. So I I lost about I went from one hundred eight point three to one hundred six even. Actually, I think I just scraped under one hundred five point nine after my ride. So I lost about five kilos. Uh, uh, sorry, five pounds in that time. But the the critical thing with fasting is not so much that you're uh, losing weight on the day or losing weight for the fast. Yeah. Um, you, you're not trying to affect your calories in, calories out for that time. Right. What you're trying to do is you're trying to affect your long term weight by lowering your insulin. Exactly. And from what I understand, when you lower your insulin fasting, it tends to stay low. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's going to come down to your base level because uh, it's not being affected at all by what you eat. So, And aren't you, aren't you moving your basal level down? Aren't you sort of readjusting your body's set weight? Yeah, that's the hypothesis that the insulin is based, that your body set weight is based around your insulin level. And that's my mm. theory. And, and, uh, I'm, it, probably tomorrow morning, I'm going to get my, my blood test and that will show me the result of my fasting insulin after three months of doing, uh, monthly, uh, extended fast. So, so we'll know tomorrow <laughs> in, Great. In, in my case, whether it's, uh, whether it works or not. Yeah. Yeah, that's always good to know. Well, uh, before we go any further, let's reprise what a ketogenic diet is. We get asked sure. all the time, and I'm sure you do too. And, um, you know, you can say it's related. It's a cousin of Atkins or paleo. And the sure. difference being that protein is uh, moderate, whereas yeah. on Atkins, there doesn't seem to be a, a cap on protein. Right. So it's less than 20 grams of carbs a day, which is what Atkins said was uh, necessary for the induction phase of his diet. Yeah. And uh, moderate protein, which you really need to work out uh, using a keto calculator. For a 300-pound guy like me, I'm 5'11", and uh, uh, it turns out I need about 100 grams of protein a day. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, scant carbs, no bread, no pasta, no starch, none of that, no sugar, no fruit. And uh, the only carbs we get come from green leafy vegetables and nuts and things like that. Did I miss anything? No, we're fat. You missed the important thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, get all, you get all your energy from fat. You don't get your energy from carbs or from protein. Um, you're yeah. just using protein from, for body maintenance and uh, fat is where you're going to get most of your energy from and it becomes an easy diet. Uh, in, in the beginning, it can be very orthorexic. Uh, you know, you it's a little bit uh, sort of a obsessed, food obsessive to start off with. Yeah. And you tend to eat more fat in the beginning. Yeah, most people transition into a, what's called a lazy keto mode, where you just know what to eat and what not to eat, and and right. and you uh, keep calm and you keto on. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, well, let's jump into the mailbag. It's time for mail. Mail. We're just That's a kitty cat mail. Carl, do you want to start off? Sure. Well, this was from Brenda Zorn, uh, and she, in our Facebook group, and she does it in her own Keto Ninjas group, too, Mm. does a a monthly fast. And this is an extended fast, goes for three days, and she recruits everybody to do it with her. I don't know how many people we had. It must have been up to words of 50 that did it this time. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a lot, a lot of people did it like for, for one day or for, you know, one dinner to dinner fast. And some mm-hmm. people just did a fat fast, but, but a lot of us did the, the full three day fast with Brenda. So Brenda says three day, zero calorie fast in progress. This will be fast number six. Yeah. Every time I do this fast, I lose a minimum of two pounds of fat permanently. It stays off. And nearly every time I am able to pull my belt in another notch. I started on the first notch in February. I'm on the sixth notch today. Visceral fat is my main target. That is the fat that surrounds my organs in my gut that caused my insulin resistance. I will start my next fast Thursday, July 21st at 8 p.m. when my IF feeding window closes. That's intermittent fasting feeding window. Yep. And fast almost an entire three days until Sunday, July 24th at 4 p.m. when my IF feeding window normally opens for the day. Traditionally, I ask others to please join me. 
We can support each other. It's amazing how helpful it is when you know others are fasting with you. Fast for part of this time or all. Many keep going. Any amount of time you would like to join is welcome. Yeah. There you go. Keep calm and keto on, dudes and dudettes. And a disclaimer, if you're very new to keto, I do not recommend fasting as it would be difficult and uncomfortable. Wait until you are well fat adapted, six to eight weeks. Join me on August's fast. This is what we've been saying too. Yeah, there'll always be another one coming along every month. Uh, I I started my extended fasting same time as Brenda did, and um, I'm I'm pretty much down to doing it every month. I'll do a, a three day extended fast from Thursday evening till Sunday, and then uh, then do a long bike ride. And uh, I f- yep. find that I find that uh, that works for me. And most of the people that did the fast with us report losing weight, feeling better. And um, I don't know anybody that um, got waylaid. Maybe a couple said they did, but uh, most of us finished it, and I call that an epic success. Oh, yeah, that is an epic success. A a whole group of people uh, who uh, were previously captive to their appetite. Yeah. All of a sudden, sticking their foot down and their jaw out and planting their flag and saying, no, that's it, I'm not going to eat for uh, a period of time. And then succeeding. So, yeah, I qualify that as an epic success. I have another quick story from New London, Connecticut, where Mm. I am here and do the podcast. As you know, or you may have heard, we're planning this Keto Festival next year, Keto Fest 2017. Yeah. This is going to be in my town, and it's sort of like a conference. We've got uh, Ivor Cummins said he would come, and Dr. Eric Westman said he would come. Mm. And uh, we don't know about Nina or other people, but we'll see, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And uh, basically, it's not just lectures. We're going to have parties and food and cooking lessons and social time and music. It, it's a festival. Festivals are for people, right? Yeah, yep, that's right. So, part of this I wanted to do at the Guard Theater, which is a theater in town. And we don't, I'm still talking to Steve and Jeannie, who, uh, who run the Guard. And it isn't, it is a, nonprofit organization and they're they're the the I don't know what you call them chief cook and bottle washers but they've basically been involved with it since the I beginning guess. yeah so anyway I was talking to them about keto fest and I I met them at a place they were eating dinner and all they wanted to do was talk about the keto diet because huh? they it was kind of new and wild to them and I was like yeah so about this keto fest thing and you didn't interrupt me so no potatoes like it was the whole <laughs> the whole time I, oh, you well. know so anyway, uh, they both started doing it last week, and Jeannie just texted me this morning and said, "Carl, this week I've lost seven and a half pounds. Even better, wow. I feel less embarrassed because I'm not eating pastries, not even the good kind. Full <laughs> containers of ice cream, and goodness knows what else I stress binged on. Bless you for introducing ketogenics to us. Wow. How cool is that?" That's it. That's yeah. outstanding. We're going to turn an entire town keto. That's the goal. I, that I, is I, the goal. I spoke to the mayor. He's in. I'm actually talking to the company that rents out uh, and has the contract for school buses. Yeah. We might be able to get school bus transportation to and from hotels. We might be able to get a thousand people in this town. Wow. How cool would that be? That would be very cool. So, Richard, somebody else is talking to us in the Facebook group, right? Sure. Jay, a couple of days ago, uh, posted this in our Facebook group. So about a month ago, I posted here after leaving the cardiologist's office about how upset I was that the doctor gave me a hard time about wanting a calcium scan. So this was a scan that I did a couple of weeks ago that showed that I had a 15-year warranty on, on against Yeah, heart no heart disease, no, no plaque. No heart disease, right. So Jay says, he told me I was too young at 29 
and that I, he didn't think that the results would indicate anything significant. Today, I just got a phone call from the doctor. I have a calcium score of 581, and he praised me for getting the test done. Now, just for your record, that's high. That's 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 in the danger zone. Yeah, uh, it's not the highest. There's uh, the the guy that did the Widowmaker movie uh, was a runner and extremely fit all of his life, and he had a calcium score of nine hundred. Oh wow! Uh, so he really had to um, look after that. Hmm. Anyway, so Jay says, unfortunately, he wants to put me on a statin and have me come in for a stress test. I have a very extensive history of heart disease in the family. My father died of a major heart attack at 38 years old. Wow, that's young. Yeah. I wonder what Ivor Cummins would recommend. I do. Should I take uh, the doctor's advice and use a statin or should I bite the bullet and continue relying on the low-carb, high-fat diets? Please, suggestions. Uh, so that there was a great thread about that and I suggest everybody uh, who's interested in this topic um, go to our Facebook group, fb.2keto.com. A lot of us uh, commented about uh, the benefits and otherwise of statins and Ivor um, was very gracious, basically came yeah. into the forum and, and asked Jay to send his blood tests to Ivor and, and although none of us are doctors or the, there are there are physicians in our group, but uh, none of them are uh, practicing medicine in the group. All we could do is offer our personal anecdotes and uh, personal advice of what we would do in that situation. Yeah. But I would say if I was in that situation, I would uh, watch Ivor's uh, videos on the root causes of heart disease and I'd look at all of the root causes and I'd try and reduce all of them. And they include a high carbohydrate diet so i would i would definitely stay on the ketogenic diet and try and reduce insulin in my diet as much as i possibly could so i'd probably go to the more low protein end of uh, of the low carb diet and really have a minimum of protein because the more protein that you have, the more likely your, your body's going to use that protein for energy. That raises insulin. And that raises insulin. That's right, yeah. So I would also try and get a lot of omega-3 fats into my diet. We, I watched a, a movie last night, the, the Big Fat Fix. Yeah, we watched it together. Yeah, we did. And the... A cardiologist in that, Asim Malotra, says that it's a myth that it takes years to remedy uh, coronary heart disease. In fact, yeah. it can happen in months. And it he said, "21 days is all you really need." That's right. So, and he said he said that uh, what he would do is he would increase his omega threes because uh, you know omega three polyunsaturated fats, so fish oil and uh, certainly supplement. But eat, eat a lot of oily fish and as part of your diet, uh, salmon and tuna and, and what have you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the other thing is that uh, obviously, you know, if you're a smoker, you, you you'd stop smoking. I, I've yeah. been not smoking now for. Uh, for over 13 years myself. So uh, I went from being a two-pack-a-day to, to a zero-pack-a-day overnight. And so it can be done if you are a smoker. Uh, that is uh, – smoking is one of the, the the risk factors for causing uh, coronary plaques to break off. And, and uh, it should be noted again that after smoking two packs a day, 13 years after quitting, your calcium score is zero. That's right, yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is that, that the other important thing to do is to get a regular calcium score. Now that you know that you've got the ticking time bomb in there, it's time to diffuse it with your diet, lower your stress, sleep, make sure that you, you, you sleep better and longer and, um, and get a calcium score on a regular basis. If you can show that your calcium score is not going up, 
then you're fine. Mm. It's it's the derivative of, of the calcium score that, or the delta of the calcium score going up, that is the real critical thing. And and people who who have a calcium score that is rising year on year by fifteen percent are really in the danger zone. That's where you really got to uh, worry about it. So for me, with my zero calcium score, I can probably go for fifteen years, maybe ten years, without getting another one, mm. and I know that I'm I'm in a pretty good state. But for somebody who's got a higher calcium score, I would recommend getting him a check more often and 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 really trying to make sure that your your number stays the same. Yeah. It may not go down as I've said in our show it you know it may not go down for some people it does and some people it doesn't mm. but um, the critical thing is to make sure that you you now know about it and you can address it and uh, make sure that you your calcium score is not growing. Yeah. Very good. And then we got this incredible uh, message in the group of this post from Cassie yeah. And it started today. I threw my insulin away. Wow. I was nervous, sitting, waiting to get my A1C at the doctor's office. He came in, smiling huge, told me I dropped my A1C from 9.7 to 6.3. Wow. Yeah. His next words were, I'm assuming this is due to regular insulin use and following your recommended <laughs> diet more closely. <laughs> sure it is. <laughs> You know, we had a bit of a chat then. Uh, he was impressed by my results, but still skeptical. However, with this kind of improvement, he said I no longer needed my insulin. And folks, I was on a lot of insulin. Short and long acting, four injections a day and headed toward five. He also halved my dosage of metformin, took me off my blood pressure medicine, and said I no longer need to see him quarterly. <laughs> After eight weeks of imperfect keto, eight weeks. Wow. How cool is that? That no, no, I qualify that as an epic success. That is an epic success. You know, we should get Cassie on to talk, talk about it. That's a really good idea. Cassie, are you there? I am. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and your worst half, Dustin Ewers, is here, right? That is correct. <laughs> and uh, Dustin, you... Got you found out about this show from the other show that I do, .NET Rocks, right? Yep, I was listening, and you're you're talking to the other Richard about it. Yeah, Richard Campbell. And I know I've done paleo and slow carb and all the other things, and I just sort of wrote keto off as being completely insane. <laughs> and after listening to you, I was like, you're like me in you know in, in a decade or two. Yeah. You know, you're, you know, you're kind of a programmer. You, you even look a little bit like me. It's kind of weird. But, <laughs> you know, if it works for you that well, I need to try this. So I started listening to the other show or to Two Keto Dudes. And, I, you know, I just kind of said, uh, you know, it, let's go. Okay. And, and I did it. And I started, Cassie was actually visiting her family in Bloomington and so she was gone and I was like, all right, whatever. I'm just going to quit eating carbs. I'm done. And over, you know, a week or so I transitioned. And then when she came back, um, she had forgotten her insulin in blue. And she actually accidentally left it with her family. And I'm like, well, uh, you might want to start doing keto too. <laughs> so that's how you got to this place, Cassie. He was doing it because it he is. heard the show and then you left your insulin at home, and I guess you said insurance wouldn't pay for you to just go get some more insulin, which to me is just 
absolutely evil. Yeah, they would not cover a replacement of lost medications. And the cost of just a single pen, which, you know, of one type of insulin was $90. And that just, you know, was too much. So I was like, well, it's time. What's crazy is that, and just to rank on the uh, insurance companies for a while, me from Connecticut, which is like the insurance capital of the world, right? Mm. Um, yeah. If you think about it, you didn't even need a replacement. You didn't need extra. You just needed a, an advance, right? Yes. Because you could yes. have gone and gotten them at a later time and used them next time, Right. Uh, well, I mean, insulin doesn't last forever. So had I not gotten home in time, it would have been expired. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. It degrades and you need to keep it in the fridge and yeah, it's complex. Right. So they couldn't mail it back. And, you know, home is a significant, uh, car ride in my case with a toddler. Um, and it just didn't seem like it was going to fit in. So the long um, and short of it is you were sort of forced into uh, going keto as an option because you didn't have any other option. You didn't have your insulin with you. So you said, okay, I'll give it a shot, right? Well, the, the thought of keto was there. I wanted to do it. I was planning to start when I came back anyways, oh. but I was not planning to do it with no insulin. Got it. Now we should probably mention that this is uh, keto is not a replacement for insulin. It's uh, you know th- this is this is a fairly radical uh, step that she took. But but That's Cassie, right. how, how did you get to becoming an insulin dependent diabetic? It, it's, you'd have type two, right? Yes, I have type two, um, and I had been on oral medications. I was on metformin. They had mm-hmm. tried a few other things and. It started me on a medication called Genuvia in addition to that. Um, and I found out I was pregnant and they put me on insulin instantly. Right. Uh, because you get tighter blood sugar control Yeah. Uh, with insulin. And afterwards, they had said it was likely that I would be able to go back to only oral medications. Right. And that was not the case. Uh, I went with just my oral medications and had... Um, a visit after I had uh, had my child and my A1C was crazy high. Right. Like 10 point something. Wow. Yes. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> and they said, insulin is the only thing that will fix this. Um, I said, well, what about, you know, diet? Could I just cut carbs? They said, oh, no, insulin is the only thing that will fix this. Right. And I said, all right. And reluctantly went back on it. So so you're a type 2 diabetic and it's important to note note that you make insulin, your body makes insulin but you don't make it you either don't make it efficiently or you don't use it as efficiently and so you have to supplement with exogenous insulin. Uh, this is different from a type 1 diabetic. A type 1 diabetic cannot make insulin. And everybody must have insulin to be able to use glucose, and we all must use glucose. Right. So um, we just don't have to eat it. <laughs> uh, but the uh, so so a type one diabetic really can't do this kind of thing, and a type yeah. two diabetic really sh- shouldn't do this kind of thing without a doctor's support and without uh, without working with your doctor because you know bad things can happen. But 
good thing is in this case, bad things didn't happen, and and it's an outstanding result. Uh, well, we and, haven't and, really asked her that. Have did any bad things happen? No bad things happened. I mean, within days, my morning blood sugars were within the range that they um, needed to be. So I was shocked and still a little bit, you know, could this be real? I guess is kind of what I was thinking. Wow. And what were you eating? And I guess maybe Dustin... You, we should talk about, you know, your, what you were typically eating. Did she just eat what you ate? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, she has to watch, she watches Ruby during the day. So our toddler. And when we would come home, I'd prepare some, you know, keto meal, something like either, you know, burgers with no bun or steaks or bacon and eggs or something like that. And she yeah. would eat that. And it was, it was good. Yeah. I don't, I don't uh, do a lot of cooking during the day. So, uh, to transition, I just had heavy cream in my coffee, avocados, boiled eggs, hard boiled eggs, Mm -hmm. uh, cheese. I kept that stuff around to just keep me satisfied, Mm -hmm. uh, when I first started. We actually buy a lot of the, uh, pre-done hard boiled eggs. Like I know they're more expensive, but I don't care. Hard boiled eggs are such a pain to make. Convenience. You know, the peeling and... But yeah, you can get a bunch of those at Costco and it's, you know, relatively inexpensive and it's just, it's really easy to eat during the day. So that, that was it. You, you basically stopped taking insulin and started keto at the same time. I did. And it's not advisable, but it worked and I'm so happy. I feel so much better. So the mechanism behind what's happening here is that Cassie and Carl and I, and probably Dustin as well, I'm, I don't know Dustin's insulin status, but all of us are not good at making insulin. Uh, or if we don't, if we make insulin, we're not good at using it. And so what happens is we essentially have a broken mechanism for dealing with high blood sugar. So normally you, your blood sugar is in a range between uh, uh, 5 and 6 millimoles per litre, uh, between 80 and, a, and 100 uh, milligrams per deciliter. And uh, your body likes to keep it in that range. Any Too low and your brain will run out of energy and uh, you'll slow right down and, and really low and you'll go into a diabetic coma. Really high and you start all that sugar in your vein starts caramelizing everything. You become sugar-coated on the inside of your arteries and uh, it causes a lot of things like heart disease and blindness and uh, it will um, degrade your nerves so, so you're, you lose f- sensation in your, f- in your arms and legs and uh, a lot of diabetics lose their feet because uh, they get a small cut in their feet and they don't notice it because they can't feel it. And well, so- and not only do they not notice it, but it doesn't heal. Like the healing yeah. mechanism gets disrupted, doesn't it? That's right. So all of the small blood vessels that, that, that feed the body are damaged by all that glucose. So that high level of glucose, it's important for the body to maintain that and maintain what it's what they call glycostasis, which is the ability for the body to maintain a good range of glucose. No matter how much you eat, your body is supposed to be able to if you eat some, it's supposed to be able to come in with some insulin very quickly and tamp it down and bring that glucose down. And the problem is that all four of us have a broken mechanism for doing that. It's really trying to hit a gnat with a baseball bat by taking in exogenous insulin because when the body produces insulin, it produces insulin uh, locally to the pancreas at 10 times 
the level of the insulin at the organ next door, and which is the liver, the portal vein of the liver. And then that is 10 times stronger than the insulin level at your extremities. And so you, when your body produces insulin uh, in your pancreas, it has that gradient from 100 to 10 to 1 between pancreas and the liver and your extremities. And It's thinned out when it gets to the, by the time it gets to your feet and toes. That's right. So, but when you inject it, when you have to inject it, type 1 diabetics have to inject. Type 2 diabetics who've been type 2 diabetic for long enough will eventually end up where Cassie is and, and end up put on insulin. And when you inject it, you're injecting a very large dose throughout, throughout your entire body. And so all of those extremities, all of those small blood vessels at the end of your fingertips and at the toes, they get overwhelmed with this insulin. And insulin will also, like glucose, will damage your uh, the walls of your arteries. And metabolic syndrome is essentially when your cells that normally respond to insulin by taking in the sugar fail to respond and yeah. they, they get they get desensitized. That's and so right. your pancreas starts cranking out a lot more insulin. Yeah. And uh, that makes you, it's a vicious cycle. It makes you even more insulin resistant. Yeah. And so it's funny that we think diabetes, type 2 diabetes can be cured by, or not cured, but managed by upping the insulin and increasing the insulin resistance, yeah. which is sort of going in the wrong direction, isn't it? Yeah, and so, it you know, while Richard says it's, we, we don't, we certainly don't want to tell anybody that they should do this, right? We are not doctors. We're not medical professionals. And, and he's, you know, we're heavily disclaiming this, that don't try this at home kids. But I'm wondering are there any cases, uh, case studies or studies themselves of people who have done what you have done in a controlled environment and had a negative uh, result? I know on the, I want to say like on the Diet Doctor website or some of the stuff Jason Fung did, like he uh, talked about people who are really, really far along, like with, you know, like severe kidney damage and stuff going and doing keto and being better off, but nothing about, you know, specifically about insulin-dependent diabetics. Because I can't imagine anyone doing a ketogenic diet and taking insulin at the same time. They kind of it kind of defeats the purpose, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I just, uh, there's nothing that tells me that this is a bad idea, you know, in my intuitive uh, brain, but, you know, I'm not a doctor, so, and please, again, you know, we're not telling, <laughs> we're not telling you to try it. Uh, the mechanism for the mechanism for how keto uh, deals with your glycostasis is that instead of we have a broken mechanism for handling high blood sugar with insulin, but we have a we have a functional mechanism for supporting low blood sugar with glucagon, and glucagon yeah. is the alternate. It's like the alter ego of insulin. Your body's either right. producing insulin or it's producing glucagon for the most part. There are exceptions. So what happens is when your blood sugar goes low, your body doesn't want to go send your brain into a coma. So what it does is it produces glucagon. And it also it produces glucagon in the pancreas right next door to where it's producing insulin. It's magic. It produces insulin in the beta cells. It produces glucagon in the alpha cells. Mm. And uh, it uh, that glucagon acts on the liver to cause the liver to manufacture glucose. And so for people like Cassie, Dustin, Carl, and I, who have a broken mechanism for handling high blood sugar with insulin, we have a functional method of producing glucose whenever our blood sugar goes low. But the problem is you've got a 
not eat it to be able to have that low blood sugar range yeah. in the first place. So, right. um, so that's the mechanism. And, and there was a paper uh, produced by Richard Feynman and uh, a, a group of uh, uh, well-known doctors. And basically the, the title, and we'll, we'll link this in the notes, the title is Dietary Carbohydrate Restriction as the First Approach in Diabetes Management, Critical Review and Evidence Base. And it basically goes through all of the evidence behind how this mechanism works and, and why it is, it should be the, the first approach. So, uh, you know, Cassie's, Cassie's, uh, uh, healthcare professionals, had they had this information at hand, would have been able to suggest to her, if you're able to reduce your, ca- your carbohydrates, this could be an option for you. Right. I mean, obviously, if you're taking high, if you're taking insulin and you're eating carbohydrates, that's a recipe for disaster. But if you don't have insulin and you drop your carbs and you do keto at the same time, I don't know. I, I, and as long as your blood sugar is coming down, I don't see the downside. Do you, Richard? What could go wrong? Yeah, I, there there are lots of things that could go wrong if you're not producing enough insulin on your own. If you're in Cassie's situation, the best idea would be to talk to your healthcare professional, say, this right. is what I want to do, and I want some support to, to help me titrate off my oral glucose medications uh, yeah. because some some will take your blood sugar too low. And, and in some cases... Well, in fact, in a lot of cases, when you're t- when you start out taking insulin, you are told that you must have uh, some glucose, some some carbohydrate food at that time. And, and in fact, the, the standard hmm. treatment for diabetics who are insulin dependent is that they are told how much carbohydrate they must eat during the day. Yeah. You know, Cass- Cassie, were you told that? Oh, absolutely. Wow. I was given carb ranges for each meal that I needed to stay within. Yeah. You know, and your brain thinks, really? Mm-hmm. Because my body doesn't process this well, so do I have to eat that? Yeah. Um, and you get answers, and it's like they're just reading from a script, really. It's very frustrating. Yeah. They just keep reading you the same ranges. You know, three meals, two snacks. Biggest meal, 45 to 60 carbs a day. Jeez. Snacks, 15 carbs your other two meals need to be between uh, 30 and 45 carbs. Wow. It's, this is remarkable because the the one thing that they do know about you is you're unable to deal with carbohydrates. <laughs> and the, yeah. and the, re- the reason that they do this is because – or one of the reasons that they do this is because diabetics have a greater chance of heart disease and they believe that saturated fat causes heart disease and that healthy whole grains don't cause heart disease and mm. – and so that's why they're locked in this in this. It's almost a cold sack, really. You know, they're, they're yeah. locked every, every time that, that, that it seems like that it's possible that they'll navigate their way out of it. They turn left again and they go straight back into the cold sack. And it's just it's incredibly frustrating because because uh, there are carb, carb addicts like the rest of us, right? <laughs> they're they're just as addicted. And the thing is that you know we we amputate so many diabetic feet, and once somebody has their foot amputated, that's it. They're out of the economy. They're do- they're disabled for life. And and we're, we're amputating in Australia. We amputate 80 diabetic feet every week. And in the UK, it's 170 every week. And in the US, it's 1,900 diabetic feet every week we're amputating. And it's absolutely every one crazy. Of, 
every one of those people is out of the economy, unable to contribute to the economy, and the rest of the everybody else left in the economy has to work extra hard to support these people. So, and you think it's expensive now? It's going to be really expensive when everybody's losing feet and yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. From a, from an economic point of view, it's horrible. But the good thing from an economic point of view is diabetics don't live for very long. So, you know, it reminds me of a video that I uh, saw and I'll put it up on the links. It's a TED Talk by Peter Atia, And it, he was a doctor treating a woman for terminal pancreatic cancer and he really couldn't do anything for her. And he felt really sorry and compassionate for her and did the best he could to comfort her. And then he saw a woman who had type 2 diabetes and had to he had to make a determination whether her foot was going to come off cuz it had become gangrene and stinky and yeah. nasty and you know and he said he had contempt for this woman he was angry at her because he thought in the back of his mind you know why didn't you do something about this when you could have why didn't you eat less and exercise more you could have prevented this he was really contemptful and angry. And then he contracted uh, metabolic syndrome himself. And he's a championship swimmer and was exercising three to four hours a day, thin as a rail. But he began putting on weight around the middle and uh, even, you know, eating the food pyramid. And uh, he did some research and found found out what we all know now and that uh, obesity as a, is a symptom of a bigger problem, just like when you bruise your foot after knocking it into you know something or stubbing your toe, you get a bruise. Well, we're not, we, should, we don't treat bruises. We tell no. people, hey, watch where you're walking. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's incredible. What, can you, yeah. he says, can you imagine a, a whole medical industry around bruise con, you know, management? And that's basically what we're doing. We're treating symptoms instead of looking at the root cause, which is metabolic syndrome. And how do you, you know, and once he learned that, he he started tearing up at the end. He's like, if I could go back and talk to that lady now, I would say, I'm sorry. You know, I, I gave you the best care I could as a doctor, but I failed you as a human. Yeah. I, I, it's remarkable that uh, we are navigating our way out of this problem by doctors themselves or their loved ones becoming diabetic. And mm. people like uh, people like uh, T- Professor Tim Noakes, Peter Attia, and uh, people like Richard Bernstein. And the interesting thing is, most of these people are also engineers. Yeah. And it's interesting that uh, a lot of engineers are getting into this field. You know, looking into the root causes. Ivor Cummings is another example. Yeah, uh, he had he had uh, fatty liver disease, uh, gamma uh, GGT um, spiked in his blood tests, and and he went looking for the root cause of this. Um, there are other engineers like well, Peter Attia uh, was uh, he worked on he he worked on uh, on risk management of uh, credit derivatives like I did <laughs> on, mm-hmm. on Wall on Wall Street. So Ivor is a chemical engineer. Ivor is a chemical engineer. Ted Naiman, for example, a doctor in Seattle. Uh, well-known in the low-carb world. Uh, he was also started out as an engineer and uh, Richard Bernstein was an engineer. So there's a lot of engineers who are looking at this from a systemic point of view and yeah. coming to the same conclusion that we have. And, and basically that is that uh, we're unable to deal with a large amount of carbohydrate in our diet. Yeah. And once you get there, a lot of these doctors now are probably the leading lights 
in um, in diabetes care. It's, it's sad, really, that uh, that they have to suffer their own diabetic. Uh, Epiphany, their mm. epiphany on the way to Damascus, but literally that <laughs> this is how we're going to navigate our way out of this by by the medical field, members of the medical field having their own problem and having to to learn to deal with it the same way that Cassie has, the same way that I have, the same way that Carl and Dustin have. Dustin, I'm curious how you've been doing uh, and when you started. I started roughly mid-April, and so far I've lost about 38-ish pounds, so somewhere in that range. Wow. So that's pretty good. Not not as good as you, but... Oh, that's great. That's fantastic. <laughs> and did you have uh, high blood sugar and all that before? I had high blood sugar, but not in the diabetic range. So the, the doctor was beginning to get on my case. I was in like the, the 110 range fasting blood sugar and... I haven't gotten it checked since then, but I, I borrowed Cassie's meter and checked it one day, actually after a meal, and my, my after meal uh, blood sugar was lower yeah. than my fasting blood sugar <laughs> when I went to the doctor. So that was pretty cool. Um, yeah. But the, the big thing for me is that I, I'm wearing the same size clothes I was in college, so that's you know, roughly 10 years ago. It's so great. And I, and I lost this amount of weight before on slow carb, but it took about twice as long to do so and it did not feel nearly as good yeah like the, the one thing i really love about keto is that with most diets you you sort of grind along and you feel okay but with keto you feel like you're walking on sunshine yeah like there's this immediate <laughs> benefit like your memory's better you just feel great you're happy mm. you know the birds are singing it's, it's, it's good stuff yeah better than any drug <laughs> so somebody in our Facebook group posted a picture of uh, their interpretation of what being on keto is like, and what it was a bear surfing a wave on a shark, shooting off a a, a, a submachine gun, and yelling. <laughs> yeah, they both were yelling. Yeah, <laughs> both the shark and the bear were yelling. Yeah, yeah awesome. And Cassie, how long do you plan to? Uh to, to do this? Are you off insulin for good? Do you ever think that you're ever going to go back to it? Uh, I don't intend to stop eating uh, a ketogenic diet. Certainly not. Who would want to go back on insulin? Yeah, that's really <laughs> true, isn't it? It felt so good to just casually toss that in the trash wow. and look in the drawer where it was in the fridge and think, oh, good, I can put more butter in there now. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. awesome. It felt great. You can buy so much bacon for 90 bucks. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. And that, that was what, a 90, you, you were spending 90 bucks a month, right? Uh, yeah, 90 uh, on the insulin, uh, plus, you know, pen needles and stuff, which is less... So it'll save us a hundred bucks a month, and that—that's our insurance co-pays. Yeah, you know? you know, I think I should start a new insurance company that's bacon insurance. <laughs> so, if you run out of bacon, we'll ship you some. You know, that's uh, bacon emergency services. Yeah, emergency bacon <laughs> delivered by drone. <laughs> there you go. Now it's spoken like a true software developer. <laughs> This is awesome. Well, guys, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. And congratulations, Cassandra and Dustin. Yeah, you've both, you. You both done really, really well. <laughs> Thanks. I think we can call this an epic success. Oh, yes. Epic. All right. And that brings us to recipes. Recipes. You say for a little? Recipes. 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 
first. Okay, I'm going to go first. Yeah. Now, this this recipe, I've already uh, I've stepped on my lead for this. Yeah, because you, you I, tipped I mentioned your hand. at the top of the show, yeah. So this recipe, I was at the National Press Club in Canberra the other day. Uh, my partner, Julie, is a uh, financial controller there, and they have uh, they aspire to a to get a Michelin uh, uh, award this year. So they're they're a very fancy high uh, fine dining restaurant, and they had seventy two hour beef, and I tasted this and it was absolutely delicious. So I thought to myself, I've got a sous vide machine. I like beef. I'm going to make that one day. Um, what cut of beef was it? Well, that, I don't recall. I think it might have been it might have been ribeye. It was a fine cut, so it was a, it was mm-hmm. a, either a, a, a fillet or a ribeye or something like that. But it but it had been cooked. Now I asked Darren the chef what temperature he cooked it at and and how long he cooked it for, and and he said he did it 56 degrees for 72 hours. So I decided 56 Celsius. That's right, 56 Celsius. And so I was thinking at some point in my life I'm going to make that but 72 hours for a meal is a bit long to wait I'm, I'm normally too hungry, unless, so I know. Unless, unless you fast for 72 unless hours you're fasting yes exactly so I figured <laughs> when when Brenda said we're going to do a three-day fast I thought oh I've got some food that takes three days to cook so I won't be tempted. I won't be tempted to eat for that time. So what's great this- is when you tell people, "What's that? Oh, that's my next meal. Oh, when's that yeah. going to be? Three days. <laughs> Three days." <laughs> So basically, uh, here's the here's the trick. And, and now I, I looked online and found uh, that Heston Blumenthal uh, did a 72 hour uh, beef as well, and uh, he had uh, a technique for making sure that beef sitting at 50 degrees for that long doesn't uh, culture any in bad bad bacteria. So basically what I did was I cut my beef up into four portions and each portion was going to be two plates worth. So I, I'm feeding just Julie and I. So um, mm. if you're feeding four people, you'd have twice the, the, the amount. And so what you do is you put it in a bag and you rub a bit of butter on it and a bit of salt on it and put in some herbs. In my case, I, I use parsley butter. So that did the trick. I used a disc of parsley butter and and sprinkled a bit of smoked salt on it. Did you use ribeyes? I used a ribeye roast. Now oh. this this was a sixty dollar ribeye roast from uh, from Costco, and it's intended to be sliced into steaks and then cooked like ribeye steaks. That's essentially like prime rib, right? Yeah, that's it. That really is. In Australia, we call it a Scotch fillet. Yep. You, you basically remove all of the air from the bag. This is the process of sous vide. Sous vide literally in French is under vacuum. So you literally you're vacuuming the bag so that there is no air between the meat and the outside water temperature, so that the temperature gets through. There's no there's no um, insulation, and so the trick to make sure that you have no colony forming units of bacteria that could kill your your uh, your diners is that you cook it for uh, you put it in the bag in boiling in in temp- in water that is at least eighty five degrees in temperature for at least five minutes and what that does is that starts cooking the outside layer of the meat and the outside layer of the meat is where all of the bacteria is so it, it's going to pasteurize that bacteria 
And then you take it out of there and you put it in a in your water bath for 56 degrees and you leave it in there for 72 hours. So what you're doing is you're pasteurizing the outside surface of the meat and then putting it in a temperature that it, had you not pasteurized it, you'd probably be growing things. So That is um, brilliant. So that's the te- that's the technique and it goes in the bag for 50 uh, for 72 hours at 56 degrees and then when it comes out I discarded the bag juices. In fact, I tried to make a Jew out of the bag, bag juices, but there was just a bit too much blood and I got that like curdled blood. Yeah. So I just discarded that and I made myself a sage bernoisette sauce, which is uh, just burnt burn butter. butter. Like a bar blanc. Yeah, it, 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 yeah. And so uh, what I did was uh, to, to actually make this steak, as it comes out of the bag, it's all perfectly across the entire piece of meat. Every single right. piece of it is medium rare. If you yeah. cook a, a steak on a, on a hot plate, you cook the outside, the, the heat comes in from the outside, the middle is the middle is medium rare, but you get a gradient of, from medium rare to well done on the mm. outside surface. So right. the nice thing about a sous vide is the entire thing is exactly the amount of doneness or as the French called a croissant, the amount of cooking uh, of the meat. So anyway, so you um, sear it, right? Is that what you do? Do you sear it or do you torch it? I seared it. I my unfortunately I'd run out of butane in my torch. So I figured <laughs> what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a cast iron on the on the stove and I'm going to get it to really really hot. I had very little oil. It was a seasoned cast iron pan. Uh, and I got it very very hot. And then I put a little bit of coconut oil in, which is an oil that doesn't smoke a lot. Yeah. And then I seared uh, the the entire uh, roast and then what I did was once I'd seared the whole thing in the outside surface, maybe a millimetre on the outside was that brown, crispy, lovely yep. seared uh, um, uh, lovely seared uh, beef, then what I did was I carved through the the roast so that you could see that the entire thing was medium rare in, mm. on the inside. And Wonderful. that was it. I, I played it with a, some pumpkin and some um, – some uh, spinach, uh, some cream spinach, and it was delicious. So <laughs> that's going to be my delicious. recipe for the day. <laughs> and uh, I mentioned this in another show that I've got a uh, poor man's sous vide, which uh, Richard's got a more expensive water bath immersion circulator that keeps the temperature very, very accurately, uh, you know, at the same temperature. Actually, mine is a water bath from Aldi. cost me about 70 bucks. Um, I would love to, to get a immersion circulator. Uh, one of these days, that's sort of on my agenda of, uh, of gadgets that I oh. intend to get. I thought you had a nice expensive one. Well, anyway, I my solution is a crock pot and one of those dork food devices, which is $99. This company called Dork Food, perfect for a geek like me, right? Mm. It's just a, a little power um, switch with right. a temperature gauge on it. So there's a thermometer that goes inside your crock pot filled with water where your mm. bags of meat go. And that's just comes out with a cable. And then this thing plugs into your outlet and you plug your crock pot into that. So there's a relay that turns it on and off when it needs to, turns it on when it needs to raise the temperature, turns it off when it needs to cool it down. The only problem is it's got a very loud click, like mostly relays. When you turn them on, they click. And so this thing is constantly clicking on and off all night. And 72 hours of that will drive my (laughs) wife to go live with mom for the weekend. So, (laughs) Yeah. 
So. Okay. Well, we need to get we need to get you a better sous vide machine. But that yeah. uh, that that will do the job. That will that will get you into the the process. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's worked really really well for me. All right. So let me tell you about my recipe. Yeah. What you got, Carl? My recipe is quick ice cream. Ooh, okay. And you do not need anything except ice, water, you know, ingredients for the ice cream base, and a hand blender. Okay. And you need a freezer, of course. You got to yeah. have a freezer to put it in. But sure. hey, you know, if you're going to go buy ice cream, you got to put that in the freezer too. So come on, everybody yeah. needs a freezer. <laughs> All right. So this is what I made tonight. And uh, it's actually in the freezer. I tasted it in a sort of a half frozen state, but I haven't tasted it fully frozen yet. So I don't know if the mouthfeel is going to be as good as your premium ice, ice cream, but who cares, right? So this is, I, I thought it was going to be a butter pecan ice cream which is simply going to be cream, some sweetener of some kind. In my case, it's a xylitol. And I also made a half batch for Emmy, my daughter, who doesn't like xylitol, doesn't like her, actually. And she yeah. uses uh, erythritol and stevia blend called Swerve. Yeah, I like so, Swerve, too. Mm. Yeah, so I made some with Swerve for her. And basically, it's cream, uh, vanilla, and I took a whole bottle of this... Uh, rum, a little bottle of rum flavoring because I couldn't get imitation butter. Okay. And I actually did put some butter, real butter into the cream because why not? Mm -hmm. It melts yeah. and it tastes good. Yeah. And then I put some of this rum flavoring in, which, you know, kind of gave it. And then I toasted some pecans mm -hmm. in, uh, and these were just regular roasted pecans. They weren't salted, but you know, they're not as crunchy when, as when you roast them. So I roasted them and I added yeah. salt and I added butter so they nice. would have some of that salty pecan flavor that would offset, you know, and crunch really when you bite into mm, them. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Yeah. So how I started was I took a pint and a half of heavy cream. I didn't use whipping cream, poured that okay. into a saucepan. And uh, in my case, I split it in two with the two different sweeteners. But if you're doing it all in one saucepan, that's fine. Put your sweetener in there and make sure that it's dissolved. And that's the only reason that I heated it up mm. was because I want to dissolve the sweetener in it. Sure. And I also put in the rum flavoring and the vanilla and, uh, and I just got it tasting right, you know, so that mm. I had enough sweetener in it, but not too much. Yeah. All right. And then I cooled that off for just about 15 minutes. I just let it sit at room temperature. And then I created an ice water bath. So I took a, uh, I put the ice cream base in a bowl and then I took a bigger bowl and I filled it halfway up with ice water. Nice. And I added some salt in there because salt creates a colder ice water than just ice water. It lowers the temperature that, uh, that um, the ice water can be before it goes solid. Right. So, uh, so I have one sitting in another and floating around in it, right? And uh, just start whipping that with a hand blender. And just like whipped cream, you know, it gets to that point where it's almost butter. You know what I mean? It gets really thick. So you're basically aerating. You're aerating this. You've made a sweetened cream mm -hmm. and now you're aerating it and then you put it in the bowl, that uh, the, the cold bowl. Right. Or you're aerating it while you're got it in the cold bowl. Yeah. That's right. Yep. So unlike a typical ice cream freezer, which is slow... And, uh, you know, sort of gets around the sides first and yeah. then, you know, you slow churned. Mm. This is essentially frozen whipped cream. Yeah. So I'm whipping the cream in the bowl and it gets really solid like butter. Then uh, I take it out. I add my pecans. I fold those in and that goes right into the freezer. Mm. And then, you know, take it out an hour later and enjoy. That's, that sounds good. 
And I'll tell you next week how it actually turned out. <laughs> I've got an interesting story about ice cream. So this story is about my grandfather, uh, Arthur, and his wife, Jean. And uh, he was um, in Canada at a fancy event. Now, this was an event at, I think, the Australian Embassy. Um, and he, he was a working-class man who has always felt uncomfortable around fancy people. And his wife, yeah. Jean, was she was a socialite and she felt at ease it uh, doesn't matter who she was with, she felt at ease with. Hmm. And they were at this fancy dinner and the um, and my grandfather was feeling out of sorts dealing with all of these fancy people. So he went for a walk uh, to calm his nerves and walked past the kitchen and they were all busy preparing the dessert. Well, actually, I think they were preparing the main course and, and he asked if he could help because he was just a working-class man and he was feeling yeah. out of sorts. So, you know, yeah, yeah. went down to the kitchen, can I help out? And so um, they said, yeah, there's some, uh, there's some ice cream in the freezer. Uh, go, into the, uh, go into the freezer and pull it out and portion it off into, 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 into blocks and put it on plates and we'll, we'll come along and we'll dress it later with, uh, with fruit. And so they were going to have a block of ice cream with a bit of fruit on it. And so Great. He, he did that, not a problem. And um, now he is, as a, as a five-year-old, he used to work in his father's uh, store making ice cream, similar hmm. to the method that you did with salt. And in the old days before there were refrigerators, this yeah. was how you made ice cream with salt. So mm. he should know what what ice cream looks like. Anyway, so he 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 does this <laughs> portions up all this ice cream into these plates and the the the. the By the uh, way, kids, uh, that was called foreshadowing right there. Yeah, you should know what ice cream looks like. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, he goes back to the table and he's feeling a bit better. He's spoken with some working class people and he's feeling a lot more comfortable. So he, he sits down at the table and the dessert course comes out and everybody gets their d dessert, which is <laughs> uh, which is a plate with ice cream with fruit on top and. My grandparents are sitting there eating this and my grandmother looks up at my grandfather and says, Arthur, were you in the kitchen? And he <laughs> says, hmm, <laughs> I might have been. <laughs> and she points to the ice cream and she mouths the word, Lard. Oh no! <laughs> He'd taken a big bucket of lard, thinking in the freezer, thinking it was ice cream. Cut it all up. Oh so, that, so, so in the Australian Embassy in Canada, and this is a family, a famous family story. But anyway, they, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Yeah, I know some people who actually would think, hmm, that's not bad. Put yeah. A little sweetener lard, in that. Okay. Yeah. Lard, yeah, lard with a bit of sweetener and a bit of uh, <laughs> a bit of fruit. So anyway, that's my ice cream story for the day. That's a great one. And uh, that concludes our show today. Hey, listen, if you have anything you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something that you don't agree with, or some more research that you've found to support or refute what we've said, send it by email to dudes at twoketodudes.com. You can post it on our website. Or you could join our Facebook group at fb.2keto.com. You could send us a tweet at 2KetoDudes. And now we're on Instagram also as 2KetoDudes. Yeah. So we're everywhere. We're everywhere. That's it, buddy. Hey, great talking to you. And I'm man, I'm so glad we got Cassie's uh, story. That's fantastic. Thanks, guys. All right, we'll see you later, people. Keep calm and keto on. Keep calm, keto on. Keep calm, keto on.